Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Bill Durson worked 35 years in Sacramento as an emergency room physician. He has actually seen and been confronted with countless gun-related injuries. He currently is the president of an organization called Americans Against Gun Violence. We thought it necessary to bring this topic to our project from a physician's perspective. And Dr. Durson kindly agreed to talk to us about the many aspects of gun violence. Dr. Durson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Needless to say, this is a tremendously large topic, and it becomes very complex very quickly. So let's start with an overview of some statistics that might help us. What are the rates of gun violence in the United States as compared to gun violence in other similar high-income democratic countries? And if there are differences, do we know why? Let's start there. That's a great place to start. The United States is an extreme outlier among the high-income democratic countries of the world in terms of its rates of gun violence. If you compare the United States with the other uh, 22 nations, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, our overall rate of gun deaths is 10 times higher than the average for those other 22 countries, which are basically the high-income democratic countries of the world. Our gun-related suicide rate is seven times higher. Our gun-related homicide rate is 25 times higher. Incredible statistics. They are. And it's even worse if you look at youth and children. Taking all youth and children under the age of 19, our rate is 37 times higher. For high school age youth, the rate of gun-related deaths in the United States is 82 times higher than for the other high-income democratic countries of the world. These are almost unimaginable numbers. Let's look at some of the issues here, but let's attend to one issue that continuously comes up in the United States, and that's the issue of the Second Amendment. Tell us, please, briefly, because we're not here to discuss legal issues per se, but what is the history of the U.S. Supreme Court as they interpreted the Second Amendment? How long has this been a problem, and do Americans have the right to own guns? They do have somewhat limited constitutional right now. There was no constitutional right for anybody to own a gun outside of service in a well-regulated militia as an individual. In this country, Second Amendment or other constitutional right before 2008, and most people don't realize that, the Supreme Court had ruled on four separate occasions that the Second Amendment did not confer an individual right, and most specifically in a 1980 case, which was called Lewis versus the United States. The majority opinion said their Second Amendment guarantees no right to own a gun that doesn't have some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia. In 2008, for the first time in the more than 200 years of our history, a narrow 5-4 majority of the Supreme Court ruled in the case of Heller versus District of Columbia that Washington, D.C.'s partial handgun ban violated the Second Amendment. The extent to which that guarantees other rights to own guns is is a matter of ongoing debate, and there have been more than a 1,000 lawsuits filed against all sorts of gun control laws since the Heller decision. Most of them not succeeded, although there's one uh, currently pending in the Supreme Court. It goes to the notion that if we have a militia, the militia is there to protect us. But what if we get to the individual? It seems that there's a huge discussion on how law-abiding people, you know, basically good people, should have a gun or not have a gun for their own protection. Your thoughts on that? I think most people think that carrying a gun would protect them. 
But when you look at how we get that notion, it's largely from the entertainment media where the good guy with the gun always succeeds. They never end up with a terrible head injury or spinal cord injury or something like that. And there is no doubt that once in a while, someone is able to protect himself, family, member, or property with a gun. But there's extensive data, both in the public health literature and in the law enforcement literature, like the FBI Uniform Crime Reports and a report the FBI did on officers who died in the line of duty. All this data shows that guns in our homes, guns in our communities are far, far more likely to be used to kill or injure law-abiding people to protect them. When striking data from the FBI analysis of deaths of police officers is that 80% of police officers in this particular study who were shot and killed in the line of duty never had a chance to fire their own guns. 20% were killed with their own guns. And these are trained police officers on duty. So the notion that a civilian carrying a gun or a gun in the home will be able to effectively protect himself or family or friends is, is almost entirely a myth. How did you get involved with this topic? Obviously, emergency room physician, you saw a lot of violence. But what was your, shall we say, evolution? Like many boys, young men, I had fascination with guns when, as I was growing up. Did some target shooting with my dad. I was at 22. And then for reasons that well beyond this discussion, in 1967, when I graduated from high school, I volunteered for the U.S. Marine Corps. That was the, basically the height of the Vietnam War. I became an expert marksman in the Marine Corps and served in combat in Vietnam. And then when I came back, I decided to go into medicine and became an emergency physician. So seeing the gun issue from both ends of the barrel, so to speak, and also from treating the victims. And I was just astounded at the number of civilian gunshot victims I was seeing. I learned during my emergency medicine career that every two years in the United States, more U.S. civilians are killed by guns than all the U.S. soldiers killed in the entire Vietnam War. That's more than... 60,000 U.S. civilians are killed every two years. Since I was in Vietnam in 1968, more U.S. civilians have been killed by guns than all the U.S. soldiers killed in all the wars by any means in which our country has ever been involved. The numbers are just astonishing. Let's for a moment, however, skip the statistics and skip the Second Amendment arguments because, at least from a psychiatric point of view, it has often been argued that the real issue with gun violence is not the gun, it's the person holding the gun. So it brings us to the question of what mechanisms can we as a society do to reduce gun violence? Is it restricting guns? Is it somehow doing better background checks? Is it how do we figure out who is safe and not safe to have a gun? Those are huge questions. Your thoughts on that, please. Yes. And to give you a simple answer, and again, going back to what explains the difference in the United States and uh, our vastly higher rates, there was a mass shooting in Dunblane, Scotland, at an elementary school committed by a man with handgun or a couple of handguns back in 1996. And at the time, handgun ownership was severely restricted in, in the United Kingdom. This man, people knew he was a little odd, but nobody, he was a member of a shooting club, as you had to be, target shooting. But he went in and shot and killed, uh, oh, I think it was 30 or more children, kind of similar to the Sandy Hook massacre. So the British government asked the British Medical Council, how can you predict who is going to commit such an atrocious act? And they answered very simply, you can't. I mean, you can identify people who are at higher risk, but you cannot identify everyone. And so Great Britain decided, well, there's no net protective value for my handgun. Target shooters can practice their sports with traditional hunting rifles. 
and they banned all handguns. Since then, there was no increase in homicide or suicide by other means. Gun-related deaths in Great Britain, the United Kingdom now, is almost 150 times lower than in the United States. An amazing statistic. Are the British people somehow, do they approach guns differently than Americans? Because the British folks also have an elected parliament. It, exactly. What's the difference? What's the difference? <laughs> Big question again. Sorry, but... I know. Well, you know, uh, and this relates partly to Australia, too, because the United States was founded by people who were fleeing Britain. And one gentleman I met, an Australian gentleman, and Australia, by the way, did something similar after a mass shooting in 1996 that was committed with semi-automatic rifle. They banned all semi-automatic rifles, period, no grandfather clause. The Australian gentleman said, uh, you know, what is what is it with the United States? You were founded by Quakers, peace-loving people. We were founded by criminals, and yet we have stringent gun control laws and rate of gun violence is a tiny fraction of yours. So what is it with Americans? And I think that's the million-dollar question. There are, well, it's not million-dollar, it's million-death question. And I think there are a couple of main factors. One is even before the Heller decision, there was a widely held myth that the Second Amendment conferred individual right to own guns, and the late Chief Justice Warren Burger called that one of the greatest frauds on the American people that he'd seen in his lifetime. And the other great myth is one that we've just discussed, the myth that somehow there's some net protective benefit from owning or carrying a gun. But why we can't escape those myths, I think, is an outstanding question. There's something called the Stockholm Syndrome, which as a psychiatrist, I'm sure you're, yes. you're aware of, is what they call capture bonding, where paradoxically people who are held captive sometimes develop empathy with their captors. I think our nation is suffering from a Stockholm Syndrome. We've been held so hostage so long by the gun lobby that a large segment of the population sympathizes with the gun lobby. There's always an ongoing discussion, so it seems, between handguns, military guns, assault weapons, hunting guns. Do those seem to percolate into the statistics insofar as the violence that we're seeing with guns, or is that an incidental discussion? Uh, yes, that's another very good question. You know, the shootings that gain the most media attention are these mass shootings uh, that are becoming more frequented with the AR-15 type rifle, which is basically the civilian equivalent of the M16 that I used in Vietnam, except that it's made for the civilian purpose to fire in semi-automatic mode rather than fully automatic. And that, as we know from the bump stock issue in the Las Vegas mass shooting, the semi-automatics can be made to fire almost as quickly, as rapidly as fully automatic rifles. These mass shootings that gave them the most attention account for less than 1% of all gun deaths in the United States. Day in and day out, handguns account for 80% plus or minus 5% of all firearm-related deaths, both firearm-related homicides and firearm-related suicides. So if we were going to do one thing, just one thing, to try to reduce rates of gun deaths in the United States to rates comparable to other high-income democratic countries, it'd be to ban civilian ownership of handguns. Which brings up a very interesting topic about the difference between criminal activity, robbing a bank, that type of thing, and domestic fights that end up with a gun coming out between the two people as they're arguing and someone being shot. Do we have data as to where the greatest number of shootings occur? Is it more in the criminal side or domestic side? 
gun homicides, the perpetrator is identified. More than half, close to two-thirds, are committed by somebody who is known to the victim, and they're not committed in the setting of, you know, a robbery or attempted sexual assault or something like that. They're committed in a moment of anger, poor judgment, whatever that might be. And as far as race goes, the same as, in fact, in terms of race, approximately 90% of people who are killed by someone with a gun are killed by someone of their own race. So this idea, the fear that the gun lobby tries to generate of some stranger and coming into your house and shooting you, that rarely happens. So it would seem, therefore, that we could make a significant difference if we could teach people better means to settle their differences rather than reach for a gun. And that would be something that the schools should do a little bit as well. So it would seem, therefore, that a lot of this is because people may or, in these cases, do not have a less violent mechanism of settling differences, that they just quickly go to the gun. How do we begin to teach people or de-emphasize the use of violence to settle differences? Again, this is an excellent question, and I think nobody can deny that we have a culture of violence in our country, and it's particularly problematic, the glorification of violence in the media and so on. But a very interesting, surprising fact is that if you compare rates of violent assaults across countries, the same comparison that shows that we're an extreme outlier in terms of gun-related deaths and also overall homicides because gun-related homicides account for such a high proportion. The United States ranks in the lower half in terms of the rate of assault by any means. So definitely we need to work on stopping this culture of violence and particularly the glorification of violence in the media. But what explains the vast difference in gun deaths and also overall homicide, since most homicides in the United States are committed with guns, is the easy availability of guns in the United States. If the gun's not there, somebody might end with a bloody nose or something like that. But if the gun is easily available, then somebody ends up dead or paralyzed or, you know, some other serious injury. I once worked with a man probably in his mid-30s. He, he was having some problems with the law, and he said that he would rather go against somebody who had a gun for the following reason. If he could knock it out of their hand, it was fine, but a knife was different because a knife they could wrestle with. So again, it brings up a good point. The idea that you can knock a gun out of somebody's hand, that comes from the cowboy movies or the detective movies or something like that. There are studies on the relative lethality of an assault by different means. And for a knife compared to a gun, the gun is approximately, I think it's 11 or 12 times more lethal. You don't have to get close to somebody to come with a gun. With a knife, you have to get close. One of the things that's happened in Florida to some degree is that if law enforcement is brought into a situation and they find out that there is a gun and they suspect that the situation is unstable, they can petition the court and take the guns away. It sounds like it's working. Have you heard about this? process? Yes. Different states are adopting laws like this. They have different terms. California, they call it a gun violence restraining order. Some states call it an extreme risk clause. But basically, the idea is that somebody, family member, law enforcement officer, health professional, identifies somebody at extreme risk of her, for hurting himself or herself with others. They set up a mechanism by which law enforcement can go in and confiscate the guns, at least temporarily. But this is not, this is going to have a tiny effect on reducing 
reducing gun violence in the United States. It's really a band-aid measure for somebody who's hemorrhaging to death. In California, for example, that law's been in effect for a couple of years. A few police officers know about it. I think it's been used a total of 200 times. And over that two-year period, 3,000 people a year at least are killed by guns. It's cumbersome, get a restraining order, you have to contact a judge to get the restraining order. Most of these gun deaths, including gun suicides and homicides, are committed spur of the moment. People don't have enough warning to take away a gun, notify police, get the judge to sign off on the order and that type of thing. So it's a teeny tiny step in the right direction, but we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking it's going to have any significant effect in reducing the overall rates of gun-related homicides and suicides in our country. What about background checks, and especially when people sell a gun individually to someone else or they go to gun shows, and very often gun shows are not mandated to do background checks. Do background checks really make a difference? Again, that's controversial, but I think background checks make a difference. They help. The rates of gun violence in the United States peaked in 1993, and it was in 1993 that the Brady Act was passed, which required background checks for anybody who buys a gun through a federally licensed firearm dealer. Now, it's estimated as many as 40% of gun transactions don't occur through a federally licensed firearm dealer, so they can evade the background checks, although certain states have tightened up those regulations. The prohibition for the things that would prohibit you from getting a gun through the background check system are things like being a dishonorable discharge from the military, having been involuntarily committed for mental illness, being a felon, having violent misdemeanor. And like, for example, most mass shooters in the United States, they got their guns legally under the current system. So even if we had background checks for every single gun purchase, and even under existing criteria, the background check system was enforced 100% of the time, it would still have a small impact on reducing gun violence because most people who kill themselves or kill someone else uh, with a gun wouldn't be screened out uh, by background checks. They've had an effect. There was a drop after the enactment of the Brady Act from 1994 down to about 2000. And that was probably due to the Brady Act, although there's some controversy about that. But since then, the rate of gun deaths has steadily risen. So if we're going to get close to other countries... Oh, and this raises another point, by the way. In other countries, the default is that you don't get a gun unless you show good reason to have one. And because of the fact that there's no net protective value from owning or carrying a gun, self-defense, except in extraordinary circumstances, isn't considered a legitimate reason for having a gun. The trouble with our background check system is that the default is you get the gun uh, unless you meet the certain very narrow criteria that prohibit you from getting one in a background check. should be the other way around. We should have the same default as in all these other countries. The default should be you can't get a gun unless you can show good reason that you need one and also that you can handle one safely. Very interesting. One of the, to use a very trite saying, but one of the take-home messages is that we tend to get emotional about the mass shootings, which, of course, makes sense. They're horrible. They're horrible. I live five miles from Parkland, and I just know people who lost children there. It's just not good. But we don't count the number of other homicides and shootings that don't hit the first page. Right. 
And they get kind of lost. So to really understand this problem, if I'm understanding you correctly, that we really have to understand the statistics. Yes, uh, that's an excellent point. On an average day in the United States, more than 100 people are killed by guns. And that's just the number of people killed by guns. Now, some people point out, well, almost two-thirds of those are suicides. And that the highest rate of suicides is in older white males. But the older white males account for a small proportion of the population. Most suicides occur in people under the age of 55. And gun suicide is one of the leading causes of death in our youth. So when you throw in the non-fatal gunshot wounds, most gunshot wounds are uh, occur as a result of assault. So on an average day in the United States, there's tremendous amount of carnage from guns. And as you say, the episodes we hear, the high-profile mass shootings usually represent only the tip of a much more horrible iceberg. The perspective of looking at the statistics the way you outlined I think is critical. Bill Durson is a retired emergency room physician in Sacramento. He is now president of an organization called the Americans Against Gun Violence. Thank you so much for being with us, sir, and thank you. Well, thank you. It was a, an honor and a, a pleasure. And I think if your listeners take on one message, it was don't fool yourself by thinking that having a gun in the home or carrying a gun is, is going to protect you because in the end it turns out to be more risk than benefit.